Well, we are in Luke chapter 16, and we are looking at the second parable of, uh, of this chapter. Um, as we looked at last week, or if you remember last week, um, Jesus was sharing with us through the parable of how he intends for us to use the, the resources that uh, he's, he's given to us to manage. We're not the owners of what God has given to us. You know, we think, well, God, God uh, 10% of what we have belongs to God. No, it all belongs to God. He only asks us to give back to him 10% of what he's entrusted to us. But what he's given to us, he wants us to be uh, generous with. He wants us to use this money, the money in this life, to make friends for all eternity. And uh, as we looked at that, uh, he was speaking primarily to the disciples in Luke 16. But the Pharisees were listening in on the parable as well. And, uh, and when Jesus talked about the love of money, that uh, we can't love money, well, here were these Pharisees. They were lovers of money. And they began to ridicule what Jesus had to say. Now, Pharisees have been in the picture for the last two chapters. Chapter 15, verse 2, they were grumbling. But now they are ridiculing Jesus. And so we're looking at a passage today where Jesus is uh, addressing their scoffing. Okay, He has a word now for the lovers of money, the Pharisees. So begin with verse 14. And the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. And then here's a perplexing verse. It seems to be out of place and I'm not going to be addressing this this morning, but it's on divorce and remarriage. And this isn't an exhaustive verse on divorce and remarriage. Um, Matthew has more to say and Paul has more to say on divorce and remarriage. But uh, this is what verse 18 says. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. We're not going to address that today. We're going to come to that back to that in another season, but uh, it's just kind of perplexing to me that it's right here in the middle of, uh, this, of this passage. Now getting to the parable. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The 
poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us, And you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Jesus said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. We're going to be looking at uh, hell this morning, Jesus' words on hell. But uh, before we get to that point, Jesus is addressing the Pharisees' ridicule. They're ridiculing Jesus because, well, the reason why they're ridiculing Jesus is that they're justifying themselves, they feel good about themselves. The Pharisees are the, um, the elite, the religious elite um, in society. And when people look at the Pharisees, they see them as, as God have favor, ha, favoring them. And the thought that um, Jesus said that you can't be a lover of money, these men were lovers of money. And money had been good to them. This was a sign of, and symbol of God's favor upon their life. And in knowing this, in knowing this, knowing the heart of these men, Jesus, Jesus has a parable for them that's going to t- touch a very raw nerve. They are proud of of who they are. They are proud and arrogant of their exterior. And they focus on the outside because it brings the applause of men. People look at them and people assume, man, God's blessing their life. And yet Jesus knows their hearts, and in their justification, their self-justification, they are totally spiritually blind for their need of God. 
we have to be very careful, church, about money. Because money can be a huge obstacle and the enemy can use it in our lives to convince us that we don't need God, that God is already blessing us. And the Pharisees, they had it all. And Jesus knew they were totally spiritually blind. And so he's going to share this parable. It's a vivid parable that's going to point out the trajectory of the Pharisees' lives if they don't change, if their hearts don't change. And so he talks about a rich man. We don't even know the rich man's name. Here, this rich man had everything, but he's nameless. But then there's this poor man who has nothing. And Jesus knows his name, Lazarus. And it's a huge contrast. In life, we see that the rich man, uh, the rich man is, uh, is living, he has an opulent lifestyle. I mean, he has everything. He's wearing a purple robe. A purple robe symbolizes royalty. And purple is a hard color to come by. It's a very expensive color, and it's a very hard color to make. And only the wealthiest would wear the color purple. Not only does he have a purple robe, but he has fine linen. He has, he has expensive underwear. Okay, he has expensive undergarments. The Bible says that he's uh, feasting sumptuously. He has the finest food that money can buy every single day. This is the rich man. And the culture of the New Testament of this time would say, my, this man has favor with God. And if the Jews only read parts of the Old Testament, like Deuteronomy chapter 28 or Psalm 37, you could come to those same um, same opinions. But it's not what all the Old Testament has to say of how we are to live our lives. But in that day, in that culture, they obviously have, according in their own eyes, uh, have God's favor. But Jesus, Jesus knows the difference. Uh, we're not to it yet. Luke chapter 18, uh, there's a rich man who wants to know how to get into heaven. He's doing everything right, but uh, Jesus says, well, one thing you lack, you need to go and sell what you have and give to the poor and, and um uh, and uh, he, he can't accept that, and so he leaves. And then Jesus makes the comment, it's easier for uh, a camel to go through an eye of a needle um, than it is for a rich man to get into heaven. And the disciples are thinking to themselves, well, how can anyone be saved then? If this rich man isn't saved, how is one saved. That's, this is the mindset of the culture. If you're wealthy, you have God's favor on your life. 
and you are spiritually blind to your need for God. Money, the love of money, is a huge obstacle in coming into relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, does that mean that it's only poor people that can go to heaven? Absolutely not. The Old Testament, the New Testament, God used rich people. Abraham, he had a lot of money. God had blessed Abraham's life. Joseph, God had blessed Joseph's life. Job, he started off with a lot of money, lost it all, but then God blessed him at the end. David, Solomon, at least God blessed Solomon first part of his life, but uh, his got, life got sideways last half his, of his life. Um, New Testament, Theophilus. We're going through the book of Luke. Theophilus financed Luke so that he could write this book to do all the research, the investigation to, to give us this book. It's because of Theophilus and his generosity. Philemon, he was a wealthy man that God used. And so in the Bible, God uses people or God um, blesses people with wealth, but uh, they know that these things are of the Lord and not just for themselves, but they need to be generous with others. So here's, here's the rich man, and he's living totally for himself. And the contrast is Lazarus. What's Lazarus like? He's lying at the gate of the rich man. He can't even get there himself. People bring him to the gate daily. And they bring him to the gate because they're thinking that the rich man who has wealth, who has things, can help the poor man. This was expected. And yet this rich man is doing nothing. Lazarus longs to to eat from the crumbs of the rich man's table, and there's no indication that he gets any food. The dogs are treating the Lazarus better than the rich man does. The dogs come to Lazarus and lick his wounds. Huge contrast. And then we find at the the, the end of this first section that both Lazarus and the rich man dies and Lazarus goes to heaven. He goes to the side of Abraham. Does that mean that we just have to uh, give up everything? You know, live an ascetic lifestyle and just be totally dependent, impoverished, give everything away? That's... That's not what this passage is teaching, and that's not what Scripture teaches. But we, but we know, or obviously, Lazarus came up to a point in his life where he was needy for God, and he trusted God. But it doesn't look like God helped Lazarus very much. You know what Lazarus' name means? God has helped it doesn't appear as if God has lived up to Lazarus's namesake. Lazarus dies. Church, that's not the end of the story, is it? For some reason, we don't know why, 
God has allowed Lazarus to go through this kind of suffering here on earth, but that's the closest to hell he'll ever get. Lazarus dies. The Bible says he's ushered into the bosom, to the side of Abraham. So here's this huge contrast in life, and now we see this huge contrast in eternity. Lazarus is in heaven, and the rich man is in hell. Now, understand these two places. These are two temporary places. Okay, when we look at Hades this morning, when Jesus is describing Hades in this passage, it is a place of suffering, of anguish. He's tormented. But this is not Gehenna. Gehenna is the lake of fire that people will be cast into um, after the millennial reign of Christ. Those will, without Christ will be resurrected to the great White throne judgment, Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. They'll be judged and cast into the lake of fire. But this is a temporary holding cell for those without Christ where the rich man is. Where's Lazarus? He's in the side of Abraham. Again, this is a temporary holding cell as well. And I believe scripture teaches that when Jesus died, And when he was dead in the grave for three days, he went to um, Hades. But the the place, the side where those who died uh, with faith in God through the Old Testament up to the life of Christ. Jesus went there. He preached the Gospels. And when Jesus ascended into heaven, he took those who were held captive with him into paradise. And that's where they are today. We're going to learn more about uh, this, um, these two places in a little bit. But uh, just understand that uh, Lazarus, um, God did help Lazarus when Lazarus uh, entered into eternity. And here we see in this passage of scripture that he's at Abraham's side. It's a place of honor at a heavenly feast. Lazarus, who suffered so much on earth, now is at rest, at peace for all eternity. Life on earth was temporary. It was short-lived, but it doesn't compare to what we're going to experience for all eternity. If you're here this morning and life is hard, it's out of your control, You can't do anything about it. And you just keep trusting God. Just understand the sufferings that you're encountering now will never compare to what is awaiting you for all eternity. You're going to get a brand new body. No more disease. No more suffering. No more walkers. No more radiation or chemotherapy. Set free. And this is what has happened with Lazarus. Contrast that with the rich man. He had it all on earth. And now where is he? He's in hell. 
He's suffering. He's tormented. And he's begging Abraham to send Lazarus with just a drop of water that it might quench his thirst. He is absolutely miserable. And there's a few things I want you to notice here about the rich man. Number one, he's a Jew. How does he address Abraham? Father Abraham. He's part of the covenant people, supposedly. He's one of the chosen people. But he doesn't find himself in heaven, does he? He's separated from God. Don't assume, my friend, that your heritage, the fact that your grandpa was a Baptist preacher, means that that's your ticket into heaven. Each person individually has to decide for themselves what are they going to do with the person of Jesus Christ. This rich man had assumed a lot. Boy, wealth is a sign of God's favor. I'm a Jew. I'm one of God's chosen people. I'm in. And there's a lot of self-justification going on, patting himself on the back and his trajectory is hell. Who's telling us about hell? The most kind, loving, gentle, compassionate, sacrificial person who ever walked the face of the planet. Jesus is telling us about hell. 13% of Jesus' teaching, he talks about hell. Hell is for real. And we don't like to hear, we, we live in a culture that does not want to acknowledge the fact that there is a hell. Or that a loving God would send people to hell. And so because they can't accept that, they come up with a lot of different ideas of what's going to happen for eternity. And let me just share a few of those. The different views on life after death. One is the naturalist. The naturalist says... There is no God. There's no meaning or purpose about life. You live and you die. And that's all there is. That's the atheist position, the naturalist. Then there is the universalist. It's those people who believe, well, you know, all religions are good. All are going on different paths, but we're all going up the same mountain and we're all going to reach the same point. We're all going to get there together. Everybody is going to be saved. That's the universalist. And then there's folks that believe in reincarnation. 
They believe that you just come back over and over again. You could come back as a person or or a an animal or maybe a God or whatever. But in, in every cycle of life, you are having to pay off a karma debt. That's the reincarnation. These next two, there are people, there are Christ followers who can't imagine hell as a place of eternal um, conscious torment. And so they're, Opinion, their description of hell would be one of annihilation. That uh, you're not going to suffer forever, for all eternity in hell. You're going to suffer for a period of time, separated from God. And then you're just going to be annihilated. You're just going to dissipate. Life will be no more. That's the annihilation view. Then there's the purgatory view. A lot of Catholics hold to this uh, view of life after death that only perfect people go to heaven. And very few people are, are perfect. They have to go through a purification process in purgatory for their little sins. And once they're purified, then they're accepted into heaven. That would be purgatory but you never see annihilation or purgatory in scripture when it comes to life after death. What are we to believe? Church, we are to believe Jesus' words. What are Jesus' words concerning life after death? What can we learn from this parable? This isn't exhaustive. Okay, but from this parable, some things that we can learn about hell are this. Number one, death is final. There are no do-overs. There are no second chances. Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed for man once to die, and after this comes the judgment. We only get one shot. Life is not a dress rehearsal. No, it's the only chance that we get. Death is final. Second, we see from this passage that there is a fixed chasm. Lazarus can't go over across to help the rich man quench his thirst. The rich man can't get to Lazarus. There is a huge chasm that nobody can cross. The third thing we see in this passage is that there is zero repentance on the rich man's life. Think about this for a second. This guy is being tormented. He is suffering. And he is unapologetic for the life of that he lived. In fact, he is still thinking that people can serve him. Abraham, tell Lazarus to come here and help me. Abraham, 
Send Lazarus back that he might tell my brothers so that they can avoid this place. He's barking orders. There's no remorse. There's no repenting going on. He's continuing to justify himself. I, I find that astonishing. He's not admitting that he's wrong. No one is going to be repenting in hell, apparently. That's a shock. And then finally we see there's conscious, eternal torment. That sounds awful. Think about that for a moment. Conscious, eternal. It's never, ever going to go away. In our compassionate, finite minds want to convince ourselves that God's really not like that. God wouldn't do that. The crime doesn't fit the punishment. But these are Jesus' words. The most loving, caring, compassionate person is warning us about the trajectory if our hearts don't change. This is a reality. This is truth. But for some people, our hearts don't want to go there. We're convinced that God is a God of love. And you know what, church? God is a God of love. And don't you love that that attribute of who he is? But we've got to avoid the mistake of putting that attribute, God's love, above all the other attributes of who he is. When we think of the attributes of God, God holds these perfectly and consistently together. God is love. He's not, it's not love is God. It's God is love. But not only is is he love, but he is also just at the very same time. He's a God of wrath. He must punish sin. God is holy. God cannot be in the presence of sin. And we think in our finite minds, how can, how can he be a God of love and a God of justice at the same time? How are those two things compatible? You know where they're found at the same time? You know where they intersect? At the cross. God is love He gave us his one and only son. Jesus died in our place. He took on the death that we deserved. 
And God, at the same time, poured out his wrath upon Jesus. We see God's love and God's wrath intersecting at the cross. That's the God we serve. And God has gone to the infinite degree to communicate to us that he doesn't want us to go there. For you to go to hell, you have to literally step over the body of Jesus. He doesn't want you to perish in your sin. But Jesus, with all his love and compassion, is telling us that if we love money, if we love our possessions, if we're convinced of who we are by our self-justification, the trajectory of our life is going to be eternal separation from God. This is the truth of this passage. So how do we apply this this morning? How do we apply this to our life? What's the application? Number one, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you say you love God, you love God more than you love money. Well, number one, you need to look for the Lazaruses in your life. And you need to help them. You need to be generous about things that matter for eternity, Jesus says. And we talked a lot about that last week. Look for opportunities to love the Lazaruses. You know, we have a great application this Saturday. Be the church. We're going to be doing some things. You have the opportunity to do some things with the community as far as cleanup projects go. But maybe you want to help out someone who's hurting, who just needs some love and attention. Uh, you know, one family, and, and Matt, is Matt Cropley here? Matt, did you get the help that you needed for next Saturday yet? Nope? Okay. We have a family in our church. Some of you know them. Uh, been here for years and years. Elmer and Eileen Stuckey. They're homebound. They've been homebound for... I've been here for 15 years, and they've probably been been homebound for 13 of those years. Uh, Elmer is suffering from dementia. Uh, Eileen, she had a stroke 13 years ago. If you knew Eileen before the stroke, she always had a smile on her face. Always. In fact, her ministry was to help the homebound. She would make the tapes. Uh, of the messages, and then uh, and some people would be uh, working with her to help the homebound. She had a severe stroke, and for the last 13 years, she hasn't been able to smile. She's expressionless. But she smiles on the inside. She loves the Lord, she loves this church, and she prays for us. Well, she has a need. They have a need. Um, they've had a roof leak, and there is one of the be- bedrooms of that house 
the ceiling has collapsed. And so Matt went over there and he took a look at it and he's uh, ordered the supplies. But he needs a couple guys to uh, help uh, put new sheetrock uh, up in the in the in the bedroom and uh, do some patching on the roof. If you'd like to be a part of that project, Matt, raise your hand back there. Okay, Matt is heading up that project. Um, there's another family. Uh, she and her kids are getting ready to move back to Texas this summer and trying to get the house ready to sell. Uh, her husband lives in Texas, is working back there in Texas now, and, and uh, they need their house painted. And I think one of the home groups is uh, uh, going to be painting the outside of that house, but it's, it's kind of a big project. Uh, is anybody here at Jim Witham, I think, was kind of heading up that home? Or does anybody know about that? Becky? Okay. So... Are you guys going to be working on that this Saturday? Nope. <laughs> okay. All right. So, yeah, when when that project is ready, um, that would be a great thing to jump into, be a blessing to this, this family. I want to say thank you to um, those who have been generous with our clothing closet. You know, we've been talking about this clothing closet for the last year, and uh you have been very generous. This is only just, you know, one quarter of what's in that clothing closet. But we've had people volunteer to come and organize. Um, this this is a room full of stuff. And we're ready to open it up to families who have needs. It's going to be a huge blessing to the families who attend the CDC uh, who are impoverished. And, um, and also families in our church or community. So if you know of a need, right now this is going to be kind of a soft opening. So call the church office and we'll make sure that, uh, um, that there's someone there who can be able to go with this person into the, the clothing closet and provide them with the things that they need. But this is the application of this parable. There are Lazaruses all around us. And Jesus intends for us to reach out and help and love on them. The second application, refuse to self-justify. We are all Lazaruses. Don't for a second begin to think that you are better than someone else. Don't for a second look at the things that God is doing in your life and and you begin to become puffed up and convince yourself, my, God's really good to me. I must have God's favor. And you miss your need for God. That's what these Pharisees were doing. They were, they were ridiculing Jesus. They were self-justifying themselves. They had God's favor. We are who we are today only by the grace of God. We have nothing 
to boast about in and of ourselves. If you get to a point where you're thinking pretty good about yourself, you are in a dangerous situation. It's all because of God's grace. Refuse to self-justify. And then number three, read and believe God's word. God has not left us without a witness to try to sort things out for ourselves. We have everything that we need in the word of God. What was the rich man asking, begging Abraham to do? Send somebody from the dead to talk to my brothers. And what was Abraham's response? They have Moses and the prophets. If they can't believe Moses and the prophets, they're not going to believe somebody that raises from the dead. What's What's Jesus saying in this parable? The word, we have everything we need in the word. And he was just referring to Moses and the prophets. Folks, this is before the New Testament is written. We're living on this side of the resurrection. We have the complete revelation of God. We need the word. How seriously are you taking the word? Is your life turned upside down? And you're trying to figure this thing out on your own? My friend, you need an encounter with God. You need to hear God's voice. And you know how you hear God's voice? By getting into this book. I needed to hear God's voice Saturday morning. Big time. That doesn't mean the storm has gone away. There's uncharted waters yet to sail through. But God reminded me in Psalm 9, 9, and 10, Bill, I'm in your boat. And he's in your boat. And he wants to tell you that he's in your boat. He's given us Moses and the prophets and the apostles and the resurrection to remind us he holds us. We don't hold him. Read and believe the word. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for this truth. I needed this truth this week. And I know others needed this truth as well. Forgive us for our self-justification. Convincing ourselves that we're pretty good. Keep us 
from spiritual blindness. Help us to see that we're all Lazaruses. We were all poor, naked, helpless. Jesus, you came and saved us. Father, in this time of worship, as we reflect on the deep love of God, may it stir our hearts to be generous with not just our treasures, our time and our talents for your glory, for your honor. Because Jesus, you're deserving of it all. In Christ's name.